Thanks very much, Andrew. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, some quite specific work I've been doing on the history of child sexual abuse. And it's a little different from the kinds of things that Catherine and Andrew have been talking about because it's about working with external inquiries. Um, my own background is that I, um, after my undergraduate degree in sociology and politics, went and worked at the Institute for Public Policy Research, the IPPR. In the early 1990s, early to mid-1990s, it was a very interesting time to be there. It's a bit like uh, Catherine's account of being at um, the Institute for Government uh, in the run-up to the 2010 election. I was there in the run-up to the 1997 election, uh, which was a time when the Labour Party was fairly upbeat about its, uh, its chances in that election, but didn't have very much infrastructure of um, uh, research and support for the process of policy review, drafting their manifesto, and so on. So timing-wise, it was a really fascinating uh, period to be in those left-of-center think tanks um, and built me uh, relationships with people who then later went on to become very significant figures in um, uh, the, 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 the cabinets of New Labour. So that project gave me some um, interesting perspectives on what kind of policy conversations and dialogues might be possible, particularly as IPPR and several of the other think tanks like IFG were places where the kinds of conversations that were being fostered were quite open-ended. They were quite willing to listen to academic uh, contributions. Um, for example, the IPPR had a um, regular workshop where some of the leading political philosophers were asked to discuss um, really quite abstract problems of social justice and resource distribution in a, in a workshop that was called Back to Basics. <laughs> um, so, um, so that's my background. Uh, the project on historicizing historical child sexual abuse um, was a collaborative project which I undertook with my two colleagues. I'll just say a word about collaboration. It's absolutely crucial, I think, to delivering um, uh, impact um, to work with our colleagues. In no way does it diminish your impact as an individual if you have worked with other colleagues. And each participant in a project, when it comes to formally trying to uh, claim impact through REF, can, sub can submit um, separate um, REF impact case studies. So for me, working collaboratively has clearly achieved, I think, a greater level of impact than would have been possible for me on my own. And in fact, this team um, had one very established researcher, Professor Louise Jackson, who really was a leading figure uh, on um, historical child sexual abuse, uh, who was working with uh, Adrian Bingham and myself, who really didn't have that kind of specific expertise. We had um, uh, sort of contextual knowledge, myself as a historian of gender and feminism, and Adrian as a historian of the press, that fleshed out her um, expertise in very um, relevant ways. So I feel that we, we played to each other's strengths. Now, we first got together in 2013 when history and policy were asked to provide a specialist briefing day to Kate Lampard's inquiry into the activities of Jimmy Savile in relation to uh, the National Health Service. And I think what's key to that invitation was history and policy's reputation 
uh, established through you know 10 years or more of, of, of work, built up through other events, that um, it was known that history and policy would provide a kind of credible overview of the field, and crucially in this area, that we would do so in a discrete fashion. So not all of you may be working in areas where there are sensitivities, but lots of policy um, uh, contributions are in areas where there may be um, uh, ethical sensitivities or there may be political sensitivities. There may be a lot of media scrutiny. So you have to suss out what kind of contribution you can make and what is expected in terms of publicity. If your instinctive reaction is to run to Twitter and tweet, oh, I've been asked to do this, uh, that may just destroy the relationship. So I think history and policy were asked to run that um, uh, briefing day for Kate Lampard because they knew that not only did we have the kind of credible links into the network of historians, but that we would be able to keep it confidential. And it was completely confidential until the publication of her report uh, in 2014 when we were finally able to go public on it. Now, Adrian and myself both participated in that day without, as I say, being particular expertise, experts in, in um, historical child sexual abuse or specifically around Savile. But as Catherine said earlier, you've got to be able to kind of move sideways in your field, staying within your, 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 your comfort zone, your sense of where you feel you can usefully make a contribution, but become a generalist. Be willing to speak on the, on the topics that are offered you if you think you have something to say. Because you're not going to get somebody uh, you know, inviting you to, to, uh, to disseminate or, 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 or enter into dialogue on the very specific topic of your research unless you're very lucky. So thinking generally, thinking about how you can draw on, on, on what information you do have, and again, working collaboratively to make something that's larger than the sum of the individual parts. So tailor your existing knowledge to today's existing controversies. Think about what a policy audience wants from you. Be bold in making uh, recommendations, uh, in talking in general terms. And this often happens in the Q&A when you're, when you're engaged with um, policy audiences, that those, uh, those questions can go quite wide, including um, uh, one event where I was uh, speaking at the Department for Education, where uh, one of the civil servants in the audience asked me, what's your favorite piece of 20th century legislation? <laughs> So you can get these kind of curveball questions, but you have to engage and you have to come up with some kind of credible, um, credible answer. Um, but as Catherine said, acknowledge if you think the research hasn't been done or there's a gap in the research, don't um, extemporize beyond um, uh, your, your comfort zone. Now, when Kate Lampard published her report in 2014, she acknowledged the contributions that historians had made at that seminar by name, individually. And she also um, made a comment about history and policy as a whole. And I think this, again, was a mark of trust. It was a mark of the fact that um, we had built up a very good working relationship um, through discretion. But also, crucially, by following up on the, um, the, the, the discussion day with um, short briefings that were made available online. They're still on the History and Policy uh, website, in fact. And I think that that allowed for the sort of cementing down of the contributions that were made such that they could be named in that report. Whereas if we hadn't have followed up with that, um, uh, that those text briefings, it could easily have been that what we said just sort of drifted off into, into the ether as a sort of very general uh, scene setting. 
In 2014, when the Home Secretary announced the formation of a further inquiry, what's now the Goddard Inquiry, the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse, Louise Jackson, uh, who I mentioned there, was very proactive in bidding for and obtaining um, an ESRC urgency grant. It's a, it's a new funding mechanism that may not be on your horizons, where within four weeks of an issue becoming of public concern, you have a window of opportunity to make your bid within that four weeks, and you get the answer from the funding council within the next four weeks. So it's an incredibly quick turnaround, eight weeks. Uh, Louise managed to, um, uh, to, to get in there, and that is one of the key, I think, messages of what I'm talking about today, which is that you do have to be quite proactive and quite quick off, off, the, off the mark. So it's no good just thinking in abstract terms, oh, my research seems to have some kind of relevance here. You actually need to set yourself up as a credible um, interlocutor. So I would advise, you know, Catherine was talking about um, uh, how to engage with the media. Do the media training. Summarize your work in, in a kind of briefing uh, fashion. Be ready to be quick off the mark to respond to these kinds of opportunities. Because if you don't fill that mark as an academic, you can be sure that some uh, two-bit journalist who's done way less research than you will we'll jump straight into that, 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 that policy space, that, that window of opening. Now, this was a grant, the ESIC Urgency Grant, which, um, which offered new um, information. We were um, making a couple of contributions, but one of them was creati creating a database of press reports uh, across the 20th century, which was a way of sampling a wide range of the kinds of cases that came to court. And we also did some very innovative work with criminal justice statistics to try to produce a new account of um, uh, the scale of um, child sex abuse cases. So that was very helpful that we clearly had a sort of um, new research angle uh, to offer. But the other interesting thing about the grant was that from the beginning we had impact built into it. It was an urgency grant. It was out there to meet an urgent need. So we knew that we were going to be very public facing. And I do think that if you build your public facing engagement into your grant, if you plan for it, you're far more likely to achieve it. Occasionally, you have serendipity, you, you're lucky and, and, and something comes off, but uh, I think most good impact is now um, starting at the grant writing stage. Now, we envisaged working very closely with the various inquiries. There are a number of inquiries into child sexual abuse. One of our problems was that, and this is quite a rare, I think, outcome, was that we were actually more quick off the ball than the, um, uh, the major inquiry, the Goddard inquiry itself, which ran into political heavy weather, if you remember, over the appointment of an appropriate chair. Two chairs came and went in quick succession before finally a relatively um, independent New Zealander was, uh, was found. That was very difficult for us because we were ready to feed back to an institution that didn't actually uh, yet exist. They hadn't hired their staff. They hadn't got off the ground. The other problem that we didn't foresee and perhaps should have done was that there was a general election coming slap bang in the middle of the time when we were expecting to make our major contribution. So we should have been, um, I think, more alert to that timing problem. Uh, and we should have perhaps had some contingency planning around the, 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 the political problems that we didn't foresee of um, the child sexual abuse um, uh, controversies. Luckily for us, the ESRC gave us an extension on our project, otherwise, otherwise we literally wouldn't have been able to show any impact whatsoever. 
Uh, so be alert to timing. Uh, build in contingency plans. Um, think about the electoral cycles. Of course, electoral cycles can offer opportunities as well as um, hindrances. So think about timing. Um, can we have the next slide? So on impact, uh, we found it fairly easy to talk to um, uh, the press. We had our participation already uh, in the Savile inquiry, and that gave us a, a kind of certain amount of visibility. Um, I also think that uh, social media was um, incredibly useful in flagging up the work that we did. So how many people here are on Twitter or another equivalent social media site? Okay, so it's not quite everybody, but most people. How many people feel that they've got a professional profile rather than a sort of either semi-professional or personal profile? Yeah, far fewer. Okay, so you need to think ahead of time, what kind of person do you want to be on social media? And if necessary, invent a couple of different personas for yourself. It's absolutely fine to have a, you know, a, a friends and family one or a kind of, you know, here's what my cat did this morning uh, persona and, and hive off your professional. I don't think they really mix. So I'm very clear that I use Twitter for my professional um, uh, presentation. I use Facebook for my friends. Um, and I really resist the, 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 um, the impulse to share anything on uh, Twitter, which I wouldn't want my interlocutors within these various inquiries or media people that I know to have a look at. So do think hard about what kind of social media um, uh, uh, presence you want to have. Interestingly for me, this was a collaborative project. I was the only person who really did have a social media um, uh, uh, presence. And therefore, I was the one who was really um, using, using that medium. It was also me who in, ended up doing a lot of the um, interaction with the press. So we had, um, uh, oh, sorry, can you, can you go on to the next slide? Um, yeah, so we did, um, we did the Today program. We did some um, uh, uh, live um, news coverage. Uh, we had a lot of conversations, briefings over the phone with different kinds of journalists. It was mostly me doing that, partly because I lived near London. It was easier for me to, um, to respond at short notice, but also, I think, because I was the one who was um, uh, visibly there on social media. So think about how you're going to cultivate that. You need to do it ahead of time. You can't just expect you know, to, um, to jump into the fray and become the expert on something at the moment when it's relevant. So work hard. To to, to set yourself up ahead of time. Um, we ran some very successful briefing days for um, various different kinds of public bodies. I'm being a little bit uh, circumspect about saying what we actually did, because like with the work we did for Kate Lampard, um, in many cases, we're not yet going public about the kind of work that we have been doing. And I wanted really to just um, dwell for a second on how to demonstrate impact and influence. I realize that some of what I'm saying here is quite ref-directed, and I want to um, preface it with saying we don't only do impact because we're interested in the ref. However, I do think that the ref um, imposes a particular kind of script on us. And it's as well to know ahead of time what that script is, what kind of um, elements you can build into a ref impact case study. Not to think that that's why we do it and that's the only stuff that we do, but to be clear about how you can support your sort of more general um, uh, impact work, your, your more general kind of engagement with things that actually will prove beneficial for you in the ref. So it's a fine balance to draw there. Now, as um, Andrew said, 
it's not that easy for us in the humanities social sciences to always demonstrate very direct um, influence. And lots of the presentations that we made in relation to child sexual abuse, um, you know, they get audience appreciation. But afterwards, what are we left with? Not always very much. No clear sense of just how our research might be tracked into some kind of policy making. Um, what you can do to counter that is have a good monitoring and evaluation strategy. And we're going to be talking about m &E when we talk about action planning after lunch. So um, to give you an example, um, here's some uh, sort of what I would call minimum uh, uh, M&E, minimum impact tracking, which is to get uh, comments from participants after the event. And these are two comments, uh, no, I only gave you one, um, a really nice comment, um, which came after um, a particular piece of work we did with an inquiry. Um, a better um, version of this would be to actually, rather than just kind of take down quotes from your um, your feedback forms that you will, of course, always use at any kind of um, event that you're running is to actually follow up with participants and get a kind of dialogue. You're much more likely to get richer material, richer commentary. Some people feel very sort of anxious about that kind of follow-up. It's easy to hold your big seminar and then, phew, you've done it. You feel like you've, you, you've achieved your impact. But actually, this, the, the, the seminar is just the, the, the opening of the door. You have to go through that door. You have to take really good notes of the people that you contact, uh, of the people that you've encountered at, let's say, a home office briefing session or a um, policy event that you've arranged yourself, and then follow them up. And one of the things that we found is that following things up with, with a briefing document or some kind of um, written text does really aid that. It gives you an excuse for writing and it aids that relationship. So for example, at a recent event that we ran for the Independent Police Complaints Commission, we circulated um, afterwards to participants um, uh, a History Today article which we had published with uh, Paul Lay, which summarized in a very accessible um, way our work on child sexual abuse. So we sent that round to participants. It was, it was great and we got um, all sorts of responses through that. So you need to make connections. I would recommend drafting your, your, your impact case study as you go along, because you can't do it retrospectively. You'll have lost all the kind of momentum and, 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 and the energy out of those relationships. So even quite um, dull elements can be very useful. So here, you can just see at the bottom that we collected feedback on one of the events that we did, which said, 69% um, of attendees would welcome further historical discussion of the topic. Now that by itself is quite a dull fact. It's just another kind of tick box thing. But the fact that we were then invited back to, to, to offer that, um, that work again to a, a wider audience within a particular inquiry allowed me to then set that up as a ref impact narrative. There's a story there. So, you know, we gave the event, they welcomed it, we've got nice feedback comments. 69% of people said they wanted more, and then we were given more. Now, without any direct sense of how people made use of our research, we've got a, a narrative there that can demonstrate impact. Finally, um, I said earlier that luck and serendipity doesn't necessarily get you very far, but I still think that you also need to be uh, alert uh, to opportunities that you hadn't envisaged. So 
Um, independently of my colleagues, I did one um, uh, final sort of branch of impact in an area that I didn't know at all well uh, and didn't have any kind of established policy networks in, and that was in the question of child sexual abuse in specialist music schools. Some of you may have followed the various scandals that have hit um, some quite um, elite music schools, particularly uh, in Manchester recently. And this has created an atmosphere of urgent review in that sector, that every institution is now thinking, what scandals have we got that are going to come out of the cupboard and hit us? So it's a, it's a moment where they were very willing to listen to um, uh, the sort of uh, wider story that I was able to offer. So I applied for and got impact acceleration funding from the ESRC, which was a kind of fairly small grant on top of our research council funding, which enabled me to run a policy event in collaboration with someone in sociology and someone in musicology. Um, to discuss the specific environment of those specialist music schools and what they might do. Because the schools themselves were anxious about their, um, uh, their policies and, and, and the possibilities of scandal, they were very willing to discuss their existing guidelines and to update them after um, uh, conversations at this workshop. So again, that was a lovely example of a very um, trackable, concrete impact that their uh, safeguarding guidelines had changed in individual institutions. So we're not talking there about you know, Whitehall and Parliament and sort of you know, high-level um, impact. We're talking there about very grassroots, specific schools changing their guidance on how they um, safeguard the children that, that they're involved with. So from the kind of you know, top of the, the big inquiries to the bottom of the, the grassroots safeguarding, um, we've found ways of inserting um, this, this research in hopefully uh, demonstrable ways. Thanks.